Picking back up in our series in Exodus where we left off, and we come this morning to Exodus chapter 32, our New Testament complementary passage is Luke's Gospel chapter 9. So if you would open your Bibles to Luke's Gospel chapter 9, we'll begin reading in verse 28, and in honor of God's word, please stand. Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning in verse 28, hear God's word. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Thus far in the reading of God's Word, please turn to Exodus chapter 32, continuing in the reading of God's Word. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast day to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I might make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. 
Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of them. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the words of Moses. And that day about 3,000 of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, these people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. As far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we have read and we come to the preaching and the hearing of your word, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we may behold your glory, the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Please be seated. So there are some books, some plays that never really make it into a good movie. And an example of that, I think, is Miguel Cervantes' great work, Don Quixote. 
People have tried to make a movie version of Don Quixote, and they've all, in my opinion, fallen flat. So while you, I again will make this assertion, have never seen a good version of Don Quixote in movie form, yet, if I say Fred is an expert at tilting at windmills, then you know what I mean. You know what I'm saying about Fred, the very image of Don Quixote, this this knight errant, this deluded man, going and jousting with windmills, is something that has come down in our common understanding, in our society. There are some things that just cannot be made into a movie. The drama is too intense. The scenery is so intense. This is one of those passages. The drama that is in this passage is obviously intense. The golden calf, the Levites slaughtering people, all of this interaction provides a horrible and yet intense drama. So I want to look at the drama as it is laid out for us in the text. First, we'll look at the prelude, and then there are four different scenes that are in the drama that is here in Exodus chapter 32. Now, the prelude is actually found in Exodus chapter 24, beginning in verse 12, where we read, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Now, the whole Sinai covenant This whole glorious picture that begins in Exodus chapter 18 and continues on through Numbers chapter 9. This this glorious section of scripture is divided up into seven unique sections. Each one with an appearance of God at the end of the section. And so we've already looked at the marriage covenant itself, where in Exodus chapter 19, the Lord uses the bridegroom's language of of wooing the bride to himself. And then in Exodus 20, he gives the marriage contract. And then there's the appearance of God immediately afterward. And then we've seen the judicial section, where he tells the people of Israel how it is that they are to love one another, what that love looks like in the judicial section. And that's in chapters 20 to 24. And then we've looked at what God teaches regarding worship, 
how he is to be worshipped and what worship is in chapters 25 to 31. And now we're in that fourth of the seven sections, which is the tabernacle. The tabernacle, and we've seen the instructions for the layout of the tabernacle, what these various elements of the tabernacle mean. But that tabernacle section runs through chapter 39. And here we are interrupting the tabernacle section. So right in the middle of the tabernacle section, this section of, of how we are to worship God and what the various elements are, are pointing us to, in the middle of all this comes this chapter and the golden calf. It, it's, it's an interruption. It's horrifying. I mean, the Levites were ordained by slashing people to death. It's a horrifying section. The visual imagery here is pretty serious. And so, as we look at why this horrifying section interrupts what is overall a really beautiful passage, this really beautiful section of the, the, the tabernacle and God's gift to people of the tabernacle, all of a sudden, this abrupt scene change, this abrupt shift. And, and the abruptness is highlighted if you look at the end of chapter 31, the, the, the beautiful section on the Sabbath and, and the delight that the Sabbath is to be. And then he closes and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Man, that is a beautiful scene. Moses is up on the mountain in this beautiful communion with God where God is laying out for him the recreation of the Garden of Eden and allowing people to come back into that perfect fellowship and the way in which the angel no longer bars the door, but there is a way to come back through sacrifice, through atonement. And in this beautiful scene of Moses on the mountain, you've got a bunch of people who are saying, Moses hasn't been seen in over a month. Our deliverer, Joshua, the great general, our protector, we have no idea what happened to these people. We know there's a fire up there, and we know there's a dark cloud up there, and for over a month, we have been camped down here not having any idea what's going on. Our enemies, they've already been attacked. you remember that? They've already been attacked since they've come out of Egypt. They know that Pharaoh... And all of his armies has been destroyed, but Egypt is still pretty annoyed with them. They're out in the wilderness without their deliverer and without their general. And they need something. They need something to hang on to. They need something to place their faith in. And so the first great contrast in scenery 
is from that glorious thing that's going on at the top of the mountain to scene one, living in the valley. And in the valley, the people form a lynch mob. You see it right there in verse 1. How do they address Aaron? Get up. This isn't a discussion. (laughs) They are not coming to Aaron and looking for some theological insights. They form a lynch mob and come to Aaron and demand that he create idols for them. And they're, they're, they're very open about it. This is not an issue of, well, they meant for the golden calf to represent Jehovah God. No, it's not. They said, make us gods. Make us gods. Because we don't know what's going on up there, and we haven't seen Moses, and we haven't seen Joshua in over a month. They've been up there 40 days and 40 nights, add on the week that was ahead of that, add on the time that Moses and the elders and all were gathered on the mountain. Moses and Joshua have been gone for a long time time and the people feel abandoned. They feel alone. They feel vulnerable. They feel threatened. And so, they come in the first six verses with this demand of Aaron. Aaron sees a lynch mob in front of him. You can, you can get run over by the mob, or you can get in front of the mob and try to lead it. And that's what Aaron does. He decides, I'm going to get in front of this. I'm going to try to lead it. And so he says, okay, give me the gold, and there comes the golden calf. So there is scene one at the bottom of the mountain. Now we shift back to scene two. Scene two is verses 7 through 14, that's back on top of the mountain. So while Moses is up there in this beautiful communion with God, and he receives the tablets written with the finger of God, you've got this horrible, horrible thing that has happened at the bottom of the mountain. So now our scene shifts back to the top of the mountain in verse 7. And I want you to notice some things here. We'll start reading in verse 7 and go down through verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly to the very, to the, out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God absolutely recoils from sin. Do you see that? The sin that this nation has engaged in is so offensive to God that he actually says, these are not my people. Moses, 
These are your people. I am done. I want nothing to do with this sin. I want nothing to do with this people. I am turning my back against them. And God goes on to say, and Moses, I'm going to make you the new patriarch. I'm going to make a great nation from you. God's response to sin is to recoil at the offensiveness of it. And here, I think, we have one of our first lessons. Do you and I have the same view of sin? And I'm not talking about sin in general. And I'm certainly not talking about the sin of that person over there. (laughs) I'm talking about right here. Right here. In my heart. My words. My thoughts. My actions. Do you recoil from your sin in the same way that God does? Or do you excuse it? Do you minimize it? Do you say, well, everybody. Do you say, well, he made me. Do you say, she said that. And that was why I responded the way that I responded. Do you and I recoil from sin in the same way that God does? I think if we have a clear view of how God views sin, then you and I are going to have a much greater passion for personal holiness. To be like Him means to have the same mind that He does. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. And the mind that is in Christ Jesus, the mind that is in God is a mind that sees the beauty of holiness, that sees the loveliness of holiness, and that desires it with all of our hearts. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 10, isn't it? We looked at that as our reading of the law. Isn't that exactly what Paul is saying? When he quotes this verse from Exodus chapter 32, The people lay down to sleep and they rose up to play. Paul's saying, you and I engage in this. Do you see? Do you see what Paul did there? (laughs) You and I, upon whom the end of the ages has come, are engaged in activity that God recoils at. When we are not pursuing Him with all that we are. God's view of sin should be our own. But also notice that Moses, in this second scene, we've seen, we started off with the prelude, Moses and God at the top of the mountain, and the book of the law and the finger of God. We went down to the bottom of the mountain, And we saw the golden calf. Now we're back at scene two. 
And we're still there at the top of the mountain. And Moses makes intercession for the first time in our chapter. In verse 11, Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why did your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Do you see what Moses is saying here? Moses is claiming God's election. These are your people, God. Yes, they're stinky. Yes, they're horrible. Yes, they have engaged in sin, but God, you chose them. These are your people. They're not mine. God loves to be held to His promises. He loves to be grappled with. The very name of the children of Israel is the one who wrestles with God. He desires you and me to wrestle with Him. Because it's when we wrestle with Him that we grow stronger in Him. That we understand Him better. And Moses' first point of intercession is, God, you chose them. They're yours. The second point of his intercession He goes on, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? God's glory, his reputation among the nations. That's the second part of Moses' intercession. God's election of this people and God's glory, the reputation of his name among the nations. And then Moses makes a third portion of his intercession in verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring. And the Lord shall inherit it forever. Oh, I'm sorry. And they shall inherit it forever. His covenant promises. His promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And as we look at that three-part intercession that Moses brings, God's election, God's glory and reputation, and the promises that he gave, my mind turns to Jesus' high priestly prayer. Do you remember the high priestly prayer of our Lord. I do not pray for the world. I pray for those whom you have given me out of the world. The election. Keep them. Keep them. The glory of his name, that the world may know that you have sent me. The glory of the name of God and the promise that God gave to His Son. Of all the Father gives to me, I will lose none. Now, I can imagine Peter, James, and John up there on the Mount of Transfiguration. I'm sure. I mean, I again, it only, it only exists in my imagination, but I can just imagine... To look up, it's the middle of the night, they're kind of sleepy, and they look up and they see Moses and Jesus and Elijah 
Wow! <laughs> this is pretty impressive. I think we should build some shrines here. This is something amazing just happened. And of course, the cloud bringing back the imagery of Sinai, God speaking from the cloud and saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Because do you see how Moses, uh, how Jesus Christ is so much better in his intercession? Moses claims election. He claims the glory of God. And he claims God's promise to the patriarchs. But Moses can't point to himself. He can't say, you gave me these people in their mind. He can't say to them, your name and my name are going to be dishonored. And he cannot say, you gave me this promise that those people of Israel that you gave to me would never fall out of your hands. Moses can't say that. And as much as he makes beautiful intercession, as much as this is beautiful intercession here, and it does, it is effective intercession. You notice our last little bit at the top of the mountain, verse 14, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. It is effectual intercession. It accomplishes the ends, the purpose. But it's not enough, is it? That intercession is only a shadow of the perfect intercession of our high priest. So we've moved from the top of the mountain down into the valley back to scene two, which is back up at the top of the mountain. Now we're going to shift to scene three. Which is, uh-oh, <laughs> Moses is coming down. God has spoken, Moses has interceded, and now, verses 15 through 29, Moses comes down. The first thing he does is, in the sight of the people, and do you, do you hear all the language there of you know, just how precious these tablets are? This, this, is, not, this is not a passing reference. Uh, the, the, Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. These are important tablets. These are precious tablets. The tablets themselves are made by God. And the writing that is on the tablets is written by the finger of God. And Moses' first thing that he does is he shatters them. Now the question is, why? Some people think Moses lost his cool. He was so outraged. It was much like Mom throwing a china plate up against the wall. <laughs> because our text does say that Moses was angry. But I, there, there's no indication that Moses is in sin here. There, there's no indication that Moses has done something wrong. I think what is more likely 
is that Moses is coming as the representative of God. God is ready to wipe these people out. God says, step out of the way. I'm, my wrath is going to consume them. And Moses comes down as the representative of God and is angry for the glory of God and for the way in which his name is being profaned. And he visually demonstrates to the people this covenant, this marriage covenant that God made with you is broken. You've shattered it by your sin. You have destroyed this marriage right out of the gate. He then forces every single member of the nation to drink the tainted water. He burns the golden calf, grinds it into powder, sprinkles it on the water, and all the people have to drink. They all have partaken in the sin. This is a communal sin. And they all have to recognize that they have partaken in that sin. He then goes to the leader that he left in charge, Aaron. And he says, Aaron... What do these people do to you? (laughs) In other words, why do you hate these people so much that you allow them to fall into such sin? What kind of person are you, Aaron, to hate these people so much that you would allow this sin? And even as I read the passage, I heard chuckles. Because we do. It's the most ridiculous excuse ever. They gave me these rings, I threw it in the fire, and behold, out came a calf. Where we know earlier in the passage, Aaron made it. He took a graving tool and he made it. But beloved, have you heard that excuse before? Do you see what Moses is doing here in writing this? Aaron's excuse is exactly Adam's. It's the exact same excuse that Adam gave. God says to Adam, I gave you a clear command and I gave you clear authority and responsibility here. What did you do, Adam? And Adam goes, well, the woman that you gave me, she gave me and I ate. And Aaron does the exact same thing. The people that you gave me, (laughs) they gave me, and out came this calf. Neither Aaron nor Adam own their own sin. Take responsibility for their failure of leadership. And, And... In all of this, and and Moses will show his own weakness later. Later later on, we'll see Moses failing miserably. But, But in this entire narrative of Scripture, again and again and again, we are shown these great men of God, these great leaders, but we're also shown they're not enough. Aaron, the great high priest pulls an Adam here. He completely avoids personal responsibility for what is 
his personal responsibility. I mean, literally, you had one job, Aaron. <laughs> you had one job. Keep these people from blowing it while God is delivering his covenant on the mountain. You know his power. He just led you out. You're, you're Moses' mouthpiece for the people. You will be as God to the people, is what God said to Aaron. You will be the, the mouthpiece of Moses. You've got one job. And you blow it. Aaron is confronted. And he is shown to not be enough. Then you've got this really bizarre section. Still, this is part of Moses coming down from the mountain in verse 25 to 29. This really horrible section where Moses stands in the gate. Now, the gate is where the leaders are. The gate is where the men gather together and discuss important things, discuss judgments and things like that. The the leaders gather in the gates. And so Moses stands in the gate and he says, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. Moses is ready to go to war. This is a life and death situation. And all the sons of Levi come, and Moses tells them, you go throughout the camp, and you slaughter throughout the camp. Now, I I tend to go along with Calvin's comments on this. Calvin says that because our text specifically says there were 3,000 men who were killed, this is not simply a random slaughter. The 3,000 men out of a multitude of millions of people were probably the ringleaders. And I think that does tie in later with something that we will see when Moses intercedes for them a second time. Uh, but, but Calvin is, is, is supposing, I think it's a legitimate supposition, that the sons of Levi are ordained here to go and kill those who were the leaders of this insurrection. And then, I think from there we see that what God wants from His leaders, what God wants from the Levites, what God wants from you and from me, is a recognition, this is life and death, and I am absolutely committed. Are you all in? Are you committed? That's what he requires of the Levites. And he specifically says, even if it is your own brother, your friend, or your neighbor, who is most important? And again, you think of Christ, saying, do not think, that I came to bring peace, I I came to bring a sword. I came to divide husband from wife, children from parents. I came to divide because this is what God commands. This is the responsibility. This is the duty. This is what the gospel requires of you and of me. Beloved, this is Christianity. Christianity is not do your best, be nice to all people. 
Another writer has called it moral therapeutic deism. Just be a nice person. You'll have your doubts and fears and anxieties calmed by the message of Jesus' love. And God really is just kind of back off there and not really engaged in your life. Now, God is alive. Jesus is reigning. And He requires from you and from me that we stand with Him. Who is on the Lord's side? This thing that the Levites did, I promise you was uncomfortable. I promise you it was uncomfortable. And yet you don't hear anything from them other than we're on the Lord's side. We are your men. And they go and engage in this horrific slaughter that Moses says, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord. Now just pause. Let your mind think about this. This is grotesque. This is bloody. This is slaughter. This screams of people running around wondering what's going on here as this group of men just move through the camp killing and slashing their brother, their friend, their neighbor. And that is the moment that they were ordained for service to the Lord. How seriously does God take sin? How seriously does God require from you and from me a commitment to it? So our scene closes there at the end of verse 29. And then we have our final scene. So we've gone from the valley to the top of the mountain. And now Moses has come down and he's engaged in this, in this horrible, terrifying retribution. And now we have the closing scene, which begins in verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. He intercedes a second time. I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And you just pause right there. Do you think Moses can? Do you think Moses can atone for the sin of the people? Absolutely not. Moses cannot atone. But he does. He returns to the Lord and says, Alas, the people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses is a sincere man. He's an honest man. And he literally stands before God and says, take my very eternal destiny. Take my soul if you will save these people. What a noble thing to do. What a... a, Moses is genuinely a great, great man. He's a great man of God. And I don't think that this is in any way disingenuous. He literally is saying to God, would you please forgive them? 
But if you cannot forgive them, take my soul. Take me, but spare them. And God responds with this beautiful statement in verse 33. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Beloved, you and I stand one-on-one before God. We are not a group. We are not a class. (laughs) We are not whatever. Each one of us stands before God, either clothed in our own filthy rags or clothed in Christ's righteousness. And whoever sins against me, God says, I will blot out of my book. And then, (laughs) and then, but now go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. What happened? I mean, if you're following the drama, if you're following the scene, Moses stands before God and he says, God Forgive these people. I am here to atone for their sin. And God says, you can't. Now go lead them to the promised land. What happened? My angel shall go before you. Did you hear Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 10? Who were they following through the wilderness? Christ Jesus, the angel of the Lord, Christ Jesus, leading these people through the wilderness. As much as they don't see it, as much as they don't understand it, yet he is there. The Mount of Transfiguration, Moses comes to talk to Christ about this about how Christ is going to go to Jerusalem for his departure. Moses, if we can get into that mind, if we can hear that conversation, was probably saying something along the lines of, yes, Jesus, I remember when I stood in the cloud. And when I said to Jehovah God that I would give my life for them, and he said, you can't. And yet, I'm going to take them to the promised land. I realize now, Jesus, he was talking about you. He was talking about the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect one who can make atonement, who is atonement itself. And then it closes with this strange, you would think the chapter really ought to end on a happy note there. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. That's a really good spot for chapter 32 to end, isn't it? That's how we like our stories to end. And they all lived happily ever after. But they didn't. (laughs) Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Two things about this text and why this text is here. The first is, 
it's inserted right in the middle of the entire tabernacle section. If you'll you'll glance forward in your Bible, chapter 33, we're going to start putting the tabernacle together. But before we can put that tabernacle together, we've got to all understand that we all are sinners. That we all need that tabernacle. Right up until the golden calf, I'm betting there were a bunch of Israelites that were saying, well, you know, that guy over there, he's a bad guy, but I love God. I'm committed to Jehovah God. I bet there were a lot of little Israelite children that were running around going, oh, my brother, yeah, he threw a rock and and he hit my sister and, and he's a bad guy, but I'm a good guy. I'm a pretty good guy. And Moses made them all drink of it because he wanted them all to understand that every one of them had participated in this sin. And now that that sin and the particular sin has been dealt with, now they are ready to put together the tabernacle. Because, beloved, that's how you and I can properly come to God. You and I can properly come before Him only when we recognize our fundamental need of Him. And the second thing I want you to take away from Exodus chapter 32 is this issue of atonement. That Moses says, perhaps I can make atonement for you, and God says, nope, you can't. And then reiterates the promise. How does that happen? What stands between God saying, nope, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl stands before me. You can't atone for them. And then, nevertheless, take and lead them into the promised land. And it's because right there from the beginning, right there from the very start, this table was before them. Christ Jesus made atonement. Redemption was accomplished. He satisfied. The Father's wrath. All of that fury that God had towards the people saying, I want nothing to do with them. These people don't even belong to me anymore. Moses, they're your people. I'm going to wipe them out. I'll start a new nation from you. That's how God views sin. And all of that was visited upon His Son. All of that was joyfully taken upon our Savior's Shoulders, so that you and I can have that peace, that peace with God, that peace that passes understanding.